One of the key aspects in artificial intelligence machine learning in the last few years has been around productionizing and scaling the use of these services. And for that, at Data Futurology, we've created an event, which we've run a couple of years now. We call it Advancing AI. So we want to be advancing the deployment of these systems in production at scale. We also want to advance the use of these capabilities throughout the organizations. And we always cover the most relevant and best topics that we can find. And we're definitely keen to see you there in the next one. This year's 2022's Advancing AI is going to be in person in Melbourne, April 6th and 7th at Crown Promenade. I hope to see you there. The lineup is looking fantastic. Please check it out on datafuturology.com. It's all going to be geared around productionizing these systems, scaling them, and increasing the adoption of AI within organizations and outside. April 6th and 7th, Melbourne, Crown Promenade. Advancing AI with Data Futurology. Thank you so much. See you there. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights business intelligence, data product managers, and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project-focused data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Welcome to another episode of Data Futurology. At the moment, we are doing our Advancing AI series. And um, in this series, we are covering the challenges and topics that are in leaders' minds when adopting AI into the organization and scaling up the use of AI within uh, the organization. So we are towards the end of the series. This is episode 12. We got one more, which is next week back at the regular time. So 8.30 a.m. for Eastern Standard Time. Um, and uh, so definitely come come back for, for that one. Uh, today, we're gonna be talking about the use of AI in the energy sector. Super, super exciting topic. I know that a lot of people have been asking us to, to cover this area. And, um, and what can I tell you, no one, no one better than Lachlan Wallace. Uh, so he's the Chief Data Officer from Woodside. Uh, Lachlan, a pleasure to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, just a quick apology. I'm now at home because we're just coming out of lockdown. So there might be a couple of home noises in the background. Um, I apologize for those in advance. No, do not worry at all. Uh, completely understandable. And um, yeah, it was it was um, uh, quick, quick acting there with the snap lockdown, but no problems at all with the with the background noise. Um, so before we before we kick off, I I need to say um, thank you to our sponsors who are here on my on my right. Uh, so Yellowfin, Databricks, Ambiata, and Talent Insights. Uh, they help us and support us in bringing this content to the community for free. 
uh, please show them some love wherever you can. Uh, they've been helping us and supporting us for a long time. So um, it's great that we get to, to do this uh, for, for you guys. And um, one of the other things to say is very keen to see a conversation happening on the chat. Uh, so as uh, while we go through the discussion, if you hear anything that you really enjoy, any aha moments, any further thoughts, pop them in the chat and, um, and we'll get some, some comments going there. We'll also use the Q&A section for any questions that you have during the session uh, for the guest, put, pop them in the Q&A section for the questions that go in. People, uh, other people can upvote them. So if you do like a question that's there, give it a thumbs up. And finally, we have a poll uh, for today, which is a, a quick uh, four question poll. I might kick it off now. So you'll see a pop-up come up um, for you to allow you to answer the poll. And um, I'll leave it open for about 15 minutes and then we can, we can go through the answers. Um, so thanks, thanks for that. And then Lachlan, I was wondering if you could kick us off by telling us a little bit about your, uh, your role and your remit, uh, what your, the responsibilities are, and, and then we can, we can take it from there. Certainly. So my current role is the Chief Data Officer at Woodside. Um, I guess it's best described as a role that has um, two key functions to it. And I'm going to steal some language that I saw in one of your um, previous uh, podcasts, which was defensive and offensive role of the Chief Data Officer. Um, the first one is the defensive side, which is about getting your data correct, getting it usable, getting it governed well, making sure that it's secure and that type of stuff, fairly typical sort of governance role. And the other one is um, once you've got your data into a state which is suitable for the business, it's been governed well, it's been managed well, it's been treated as an asset, it's to realise the value of that asset. So that is the offensive side. So how do you go about getting value from data and infrastructure even you've invested in? Um, and that's where the AI, the machine learning comes into it so that you can go from a an organization that has data to an organization that is using data very well. That is great, man. That's really good. And I like the, um, I like that approach of the offensive um, versus the defensive. Uh, that's, that's really. I have borrowed shamelessly from your previous podcasts. <laughs> no, that's great. I am um, very, very happy to, to hear. That's exactly what we want to, uh, what we want to do. Um, and then tell me how, how do you, um, um, look at the work or splitting up the work um, in an overarching way. Um, it can be either in the offensive or defensive bucket. Um, but um, can you give us some 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 areas that you that you've tackled um, during your your time there at Woodside? Um, I think um, the best way to describe what we do is we assign roles and responsibilities throughout the business. Um, the amount of data that we collect collect and the breadth of the data that we collect is significantly large and probably beyond capability of a centralised organisation. So we hold the business to, uh, to account for the data that they create. They're, they're there to create it in a suitable manner to, the, to suitable quality for the, the business case that they are using it for. Um, so that the governance is distributed to the business and we provide a later oversight to that. Then what we do is we make, we have an infrastructure um, that allows the, the business to consume that data um, independent of 
the data creation application. And that allows us to service the business requirements within a certain part of the business and in other parts of the business to answer business-related questions. So we're trying to create layers of separation between creation and consumption or our data ecosystem. And what that does is allow us to use data in multiple formats, in multiple applications, and for multiple use cases um, without too much disruption to the creator and the source system. That's that's excellent. Um, that's really good. So I definitely want, I, I, I got a follow-up question, a couple of follow-up questions from there. I might first ask you about how you interact with the, with the business to get them um, to make them own the data quality that, that they're providing. Um, how does, how does that, that relationship or, or um, those communications uh, look like? What's, what's the, the structure, obviously, as much as, as you can share? Um, I think I'm lucky in the fact that our organisation is very data literate. Um, it's a, a, an engineering organisation um, and it's full of people who have a sort of very significant STEM background. So a lot of maths knowledge, a lot of numeracy. Um, so the understanding of the value of data hasn't been a huge hurdle for myself. Mm-hmm. I think with the amount of energy that is globally around the sort of data story and the value of data, coming in has been a lot of a significantly um, easy exercise. It's been an open door really to have the conversation about we need to understand our data, we need to be able to present it to the business in a consistent manner so that you know how and when to go and find the information that you're looking for. You know how to un- you know whether a piece of information you are looking at is the source of truth and that how and how and when you should use it. So creating those frameworks and having those conversations within the business on a on a one-to-one or one-to-many basis has actually been quite easy because of the um, the qualifications of the individuals I'm talking to and the expectation that this is the world that we're heading into in sort of the new age of digital and data science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, definitely a an important um, important and valuable leg up right there. And um, tell me your views on on the ecosystems. Um, how so? So you mentioned briefly there a, a separation of of areas. What does that look like for your and and how have you guys um, designed and built the the ecosystems internally? Um. I think possibly the uh, the best um, the way to illustrate this point is I might talk about uh, an AI application that was built within Woodside and how we created it and then how we have deployed some of that information and then how we've grown on top of that. And it's a, it's a very simple application. So, um, and as I work, walk through the story, we'll be able to pick out some of those bits that I think you're referring to. Great. So let me start with what it is we created. Um, when you go through um, an industrial plant, similar to the one we run, you'll find lots of pumps and machines that, are, that use oil as a lubricant. Now, typically on the side of the machine, you'll see a side class, which tells you how much oil is left in that machine. Because it's a side class, it takes someone to walk around and have a look at it, make an assessment, write it down, and then assess whether the machine needs new oil or not. 
So a simple machine, our AI application was to put a camera looking at that sight glass and take a photo and get a, get a machine learning algorithm or an AI algorithm to interpret what the level was. So step one, we got a, an AI to read the sight glass. It's very simple. It's almost like a fuel gauge in your car. Now that we've got a machine to read it, we can increase the frequency of which it's being read and create a time series uh, result from the result that the AI is creating. So instead of doing it once a week or whatever the cadence was for the human, we can now do it once every three hours or something. And from there, we can create a time series. Now, if we publish that piece of information, we've created a piece of information that other people can use to interpret things about the behaviour of that piece of equipment. So how do we do that? So first of all, what we've done is created a separation between data and application. Now, data science and machine learning, in my view, is an application. It is a set of tools that people are using to perform a workflow or an activity. What they're using is the data. So we, so we create a separation between the image being stored so that many people can use it and the application that the data scientists are using to interpret that image. They then publish that, the result of that back as a new data source into the same data ecosystem. So they become a source of information, not just a consumer, but a source of information. So now we have another data set being recorded that's available for other people. So there's a distinct layer or separation of activities between the data ecosystem and the application or workflow ecosystem and the people interpreting that data. So then what is now available is you've now got a data set of, a, of time and value for that site class in this case. Now that can be consumed by an engineer or can be consumed by someone who's maintaining that piece of equipment. And it can then be used for further machine learning, looking at predicting how that, that piece of equipment is performing based on a piece of information that we didn't have digitally recorded previously. So it can then service multiple use cases. One of the things that we found around adoption, which I think is a very good point, is having a lot of numerically savvy individuals within the organisation meant that they were using numerically literate tools already mm. and pushing new applications onto them was probably an adoption problem that we didn't need to tackle. Mm. So under this ecosystem and how we're constructing our data versus application ecosystem, we were able to create data science models, bring them back into the data ecosystem and then publish them into applications that the engineers in this case or other users within Woodside were already familiar with and using. So we didn't have an adoption around applications and it meant that all we needed them to look at was a new data stream within an existing ecosystem that they were familiar with and it became a very powerful adoption tool. That, that's really interesting. Um, really, really good to have the... A bit long-winded answer for you for the no, question. No, you're kidding you me. That's, it's great. Um, it's it really highlights the the power of the of the separation um, between the the data and the applications, and having having the applications right back to to the data, um, and then for that data to be able to be reused uh, and and for it to be integrated wherever people are, like whatever their their current workflow is. I think the nirvana for data is to have it consumed 
as many times as you as you can. So if I can pre present that 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 little piece of information from a site glass into a maintenance dashboard, so they're visualizing some information, but also into an engineering algorithm who's who's diagnosing issues that may or may not be present in that piece of equipment, mm -hmm. then I have doubled the value of the asset that I've created. And as I said, we're trying to create treat data as an asset that is valuable to the business and that people can leverage um, value from. That's that's fantastic. That is um that is really great. And where where did the um did the design for the ecosystem come come from? When when did it um, first come into into fruition uh, within the organization? Um, so you might need to walk back a bit through my my history in in as a, an engineer initially. Um, but I guess in two thousand fourteen we started data science within Woodside. Um, and that was a quite an adventure, um, which I really, really enjoyed. I, I really, being a data nerd myself and coming and being one of these people in the organisation who are numerically savvy, I really enjoyed solving problems using data. Mm. What, what became apparent was um, a couple of things we did, which I thought was very powerful, was when we went into a source system, we went and got all of that information. So if we were going mm -hmm. to do a a project on a certain system, we'd make sure that we went into that system and didn't just get the data that we need, but all the other surrounding data so that when we came back to the next problem, it became a lot easier. Um, and that we didn't have another ingestion problem. We certainly were, had a feeling that a large part of any data project was actually, or data science project was actually getting the data available. So we sort of tackled that issue. In doing that, we started other parts of the business started to come and talk to us and say, look, we know you have the data. Can you make it available to us? And this is a very, because the, the business was, as I have repeatedly said, quite numerically literate and was very, very data driven. Um, we started to see that data science weren't the only consumers of this information. Um, and the final one was around the piece around adoption that I said, we wanted to push this data into as many places as we possibly could. So how do we service a ecosystem that was um, able to um, consume data in multiple, multiple formats and multiple applications? And I said that was a final point, but I've just remembered a really critical third one. We wanted to... And the final thing which really pushed us into this ecosystem was the deployment of data science models. Mm. Now, I've briefly touched on the AI model. Now, where we wanted to get to was um, having our data scientists and anyone else using data investing their time in the creation of the valuable product, the algorithm, and not in getting chasing the data. So you go back to my first point where I was saying, we went into a system and got all of the data. Well, the next bit was when we had the data, we had to make sure it was suitable for deployment mm. because another observation we sort of had in our early years was we'd build a debt, uh, an algorithm, but in doing so, we did a lot of cleansing cleansing and cleaning and, and manipulating of the data asset to, to suit the algorithm that we're building. And then when we came to deploy it, we had to, the the source system had 
data treatment, and we had a deployment issue. So the final thing we did was we wanted our data scientists to build our algorithms on the same data feed, not just the same data set, but the same data feed that they were going to deploy their algorithms on. So we had this, we separated data science and data and said, okay, data, data have their own dev test prod environments, which is independent of data science who also have their dev test prod environment. And the data science test environment will be feeding off the data prod environment so that when they come to deploy their ecosystem or their algorithm, sorry, it's on the same data feed. What we didn't realize at the time, but the, the power of that model and the acceleration in time to value was incredible to the point now where we've done a few more bits and pieces in the ecosystem. But once the data scientist has got to the point where they've finalized their model and they're ready to deploy, Deployment is measured in minutes, not hours or days. We can have that system ready and just um, deploy it. I think the quickest we've had it is under five minutes, but generally a little bit, um, little bit of um, sort of curation and uh, sort of governance. And we're, we're certainly within an hour, we can have that algorithm deployed and then being consumed within the business. So there's a number of layers there, there's a number of um, reasons for it, but it was a bit of a journey. And, but now we've got an ecosystem where these separation duties has proven very powerful for us. Definitely, man, that is, that is impressive. Um, and definitely extremely, extremely valuable um, model to, uh, for, for organizations to adopt. Uh, we had a, a comment from, from Conrad um, as, you were, as you were speaking, he said, um, that's really nice, Lachlan, uh, to have the AI insights integrated into the fabric of the, of the organization. Um, I love that, yeah. It's, I think um, it's very, very nice working with a, a company like Woodside. It, it, it invests um, significantly in the things that are the current future, if that's a, if you can turn something that way, mm-hmm. but also in things that are in the future. And so, um, AI is only part of the journey that Woodside's on. Um, so to have it, it, it has to be integrated in the business for the business to consume it. Um, if you have this sort of data science cell off to the side or sort of stuck onto the business, it adoption and sort of business problems become a little bit sort of abstracted away from what the business is trying to do. So actually having it embedded in the business means we're answering business problems and tackling the things that the business needs answered. Um, very powerful in that way. Thank you, Conrad. Nice question or comment. Oh, it's really good. It's, it's um, your perspective there is, is really beneficial to, to see AI not as the end game, but as a, as a component, because then you get to push further into, into the, the use and the adoption and um, and there's a there's a follow up comment from Conrad says I guess not many AI projects get to have business users adopt it. A lot of good effort goes to waste by young engineers. Um, it helps to have business people part of the analytics team uh, and and having that that further vision um, as you guys do makes a difference. Absolutely critical. If you're not answering a business problem, um, you, you you you're basically doing a science experiment. Um, so having the business people explaining the problem because no one, when it's sort of a broad business like we run where there's multiple asset, multiple assets with multiple 
activities going on. No single person can have know everything perfectly. So asking that of your data scientists is, I think, um, a very big stretch. So having the business people really tightly coupled with the data scientists is very valuable. And also the point I made earlier around you deploying into the tools they're already using has is, again, a very powerful tool. So your adoption framework becomes very, very narrow in terms of just understanding what the piece of information they're getting is. Great, great. And uh, there was a, a, follow, uh, a follow-up question from Natasha um, around how, to, how do you decide how to solve uh, the problems or what approaches uh, you use to solve problems? Her question is, um, how do you decide to use visual imaging as opposed to other, um, other ways to measure, uh, send, um, measure the information, sensors or, or directly measuring the amount of oil remaining? Um, out of the options uh, to solve a, a particular problem, how do you choose which one to go with? Um, generally, it comes down to cost. What's the cheapest way to get the information that you need to solve the problem? Um, and in fact, I can't think of any other reason why you wouldn't choose cost. Um, the There are many ways, as Natasha points out, this one was visual visual analytics because it was just quick and easy to get to. We we use other sensor information um, when required. Um, we are lucky in that all our plants are heavily instrumented already just for their basic functions. So we get a lot of that IoT information as out of the box in our industrial plants because they're fully censored. So there is a lot of information already. I guess, and where there, there isn't information like in that site class, um, we could have used uh, a level meter measurement or something else, but, it, but that wouldn't involve intervening on that piece of equipment. In this case, it was a very quick POC with a, would you believe a off the shelf IoT um, camera that came, um, with all the bits and bells and whistles that we needed, i.e. just a camera, um, and it didn't require any intervention into that piece of equipment. So I think every business has different cost metrics about what drive them. Um, in our case, being remote means putting people in place costs us a fair bit of money. Um, so using the, the, the differential cost of devices changes somewhat, doesn't make it uh, completely different. But yep. you're looking at what your cost drivers are within your business and making sure you're making the right decision for it. Um, cost drivers are not necessarily purely money either. Safety and um, uh, welfare issues come into play as well. Yeah, definitely. Uptime uh, for, for the plans, I'm sure it's important, but that's that's a really good way to look at it because um, in this case, you're going from a um, from it sounds like a manual approach to to uh, a more automated approach and having you know this the sorry the beauty of the that that particular example was it went from the idea was not to create a data stream of information but to reduce a, a fairly small value add role mm. on on the site. So it was an activity that the, op that the operators didn't particularly enjoy doing. It was, it had, 
it was repetitive because we were looking for an answer. To provide this solution certainly has empowered them because they go to that site um, when they only when they need to, not when they not just to try and discover something. Nice. But in doing so, we then were able to create a data stream that was able to to give us a new insight into how that piece of equipment was performing. And from there, we were able to build other tools on top of that piece of information. So once you start something, you've the, the, the ability to build on top of that using a data ecosystem is very powerful as well. Man, that is fantastic. And we have a, a follow-up question from Kirsten. Uh, she says, do you find times uh, that at times you, you roll out a model with a mistake? Um, if if so, how does how does that get picked up? How does it get rolled back and and improved? Um, so, yes, the answer is yes. I think um, everyone is fallible, including uh, unicorn data scientists. The yep. the we have a number of um, means to monitor our models. Um, and in fact, we've built an ecosystem which sort of continuously checks the veracity of, of the outcome. So we've, we've created what we think is a set of bounding conditions which define what good looks like for that particular algorithm. Um, we also run versioning so that we, have, we can run multiple versions of the same model in parallel and check how, how they are performing mm -hmm. so that we can roll back and roll forward very much following a software development type protocol in our data science ecosystem. The, the overall ecosystem sort of has a number of sort of checks and balances within it. The, and ultimately we're presenting information to human decision makers. We're very much of the, of the mind that AI is an augmenting tool and not a replacement tool so that the humans in the loop are critical in assisting us to judge that the information they're getting is correct. So in summary, I've sort of talked around the topic, but it's a multi-layered approach. We have tests that run continuously to check that it's happening. We can run in parallel multiple versions to make sure that we, what we're seeing we think is correct. And we have people in the loop who know what good looks like. That's great. And there's um, there is a lot of a lot of interest on your um, data and data science ecosystems. Um, lots of lots of questions coming in. So I might start with a question from Sarah Dodds. Hey, Sarah. Um, she says, curious about pushing to production in five minutes. Uh, did that include a feedback loop to track performance over time, and an and an ability for the models to evolve and respond to in response to changing conditions? So, basically, what yes, the model can evolve. Um, we can rerun it, we can retrain it, or we can have it train itself in period periodic um, sequences. I'm probably unsure. Um, whether we have a continuously training model or whether it's, um, I can't think of one off the top of my head. However, we do have periodically retraining exercises. The, just put some color around what I mean by push deployment in under five minutes or like within an hour. It's essentially 
we've packaged the we've packaged the algorithm up. Now it can be as a complex sort of image recognition algorithm, or it can be as very simple as a sort of a linear mathematical algorithm. It, it's just packaged up, put into our deployment framework. It's, it knows what data it's going to be calling. It calls the data and then publishes the result. That the execution time of that particular algorithm is generally pretty small, but um, they can be long. But it's sort of a, a consistent framework independent of the complexity of the algorithm. Now, the algorithm itself might have um, its sort of needs and wants around testing and retraining, um, and that can be done as well. So it's not, but so it's, yeah, it's not that we've excluded sort of a whole heap of parts of the data science ecosystem, but the general consumer of that algorithm is looking at a result and an outcome to add value to their business mm. and less so about the sort of mechanics of what the data science team need to go through to manage that piece of information for them. To keep the data science team quite lean, we need to make sure that they are managing their data assets, the ones that they create with the same attention to detail that everyone else in the business is managing their own data assets because effectively anything coming out of the data system, data science system is using the data science ecosystem as a, as a source of information and they need to govern that data. We run, last count, it was over 10,000 algorithms an hour. Um, wow. So adds varying complexity mm. and that's beyond the power of an individual to govern. So we have tools to help assist us with that. Amazing, man! That is that is incredible, and and um, yeah, we've so we've been discussing the, I guess the the infrastructure uh, to enable the um, data science use cases, uh, the the data preparation, the getting um, getting the the results of AI to users. Um, we've got a couple of questions around um, a different different. Um, different on a different plane which is around other use cases or other examples of of ai models in the energy sector um if you can share and some others with us um there's a question from from tim and from anna talking about um yeah what other um are there any other examples that, that you can share um there are a couple that we which i can share um, I think the most the most powerful ones are probably the generally the most simple. Um, mm. Is it? And I'm going to segue to a different answer before I come back to this. So bear with me. The other thing around um, working in a numerically um, competent organisation, but also an engineering organisation, is the physics models are very strong and powerful and accurate. So there are times when you get, when the physics models will be supreme and there are times when the numeric, new, the data models or the numeric models will be supreme and the, the actual where the real power comes is when you can get physics models and data models to work together. Mm-hmm. And so some of the most powerful deployments have been using the data ecosystem to feed a physics model and then have that produce a raft of information um, and that physics model can be as simple as a diving into some of the real sort of techie stuff of our industry, but a simple choke model on a valve 
um, or to some more complex sort of um, process modeling. Um, the, the other thing that that implies is a lot of the maths in our industry is already known, but doesn't get deployed at scale because of the volume problem around the data ecosystem. Mm. So having understood the maths for a long time, but then deploying that maths in a continuous data framework is, is one of the very powerful things that we've been able to achieve in the, in the last two years. So, and then it becomes a very interesting topic about whether that's data science or whether that's engineering and physics. Right. But again, we're answering we're answering a business problem in a language that is going to get fast adoption and through both comprehension and um, accuracy. Winding back, one of the one of the more powerful but simple tools for data science has been understanding human-entered information and being able to digitise it in a way that we can then consume as an information stream. So quite simply, um, in this case, we've been doing a lot of work around maintenance. Mm -hmm. And typically, you'll get an operator in the field giving you an, a, a story or some written text around what they experienced when they were performing maintenance on a piece of equipment. Ultimately, what we want to know is whether that equipment was working or not. Now, there is almost an infinite number of variations around a human can, can, can describe something that is working or not working. Mm -hmm. um, some of the, um, I think some of the language that you might have used around your car when it breaks down could, could, be, you, could be interpreted multiple different ways. So creating an algorithm to actually understand that so that we can create a failure data set with high accuracy has been a very valuable um, activity within the business and it's allowed us to move from a data set that was untrusted or I'll probably I'm overstating it, it wasn't well trusted to something that it is trusted and is delivering enormous value into the business around interpreting machine performance has been possibly one of the one of the more outstanding illustrations of how data science can look at something differently. And everyone's saying, well, we need to, we need to go interpret the machine data when actually we went back and looked at how the humans were interpreting machine performance, then reinterpreting that as machine data. That was quite simple in concept, quite mm. difficult in execution mm. and very powerful in, it when, in its outcome. That's incredible. And, and we have a, a related question uh, from Anshu um, about how does that feed back to the, um, to the, the people who are doing the, the maintenance or the work in this case? Um, are there, is, there, is there any process where they learn back from the, from the data that was analyzed um, out of what they so, entered? So in this case, that information has been consumed many times. Um, very simply, it came back as a dashboard that told them whether a piece of equipment was working or not. So if you're running, a, if you're running an industrial plant, you want to be very reliable and, and Woodside has some very enviable reliability statistics. But equipment doesn't work all the time. And so having, if you're running that, that plant, you want to know what is working, what is not, so that you can make the correct decision about how to get the best outcome for, for your production day. 
And so having very simply presenting that information correctly and accurately to the frontline operations personnel so they can interpret that information is very, very valuable. Mm. In the back end, again, the engineers are then using it to look at the longevity and look at the the longitudinal performance of pieces of equipment to make sure we have we got the right piece of equipment in the right right um, position within a plant or should we be looking at something else and looking at how we can optimise in the long term. So very simply, you've got a front line and a back, and a back office people, people using that information based on the fact that we are now able to tell them with more certainty what the actual condition of that piece of equipment is. Great. Great, great, great. Um, and we have a question from, from Stuart around the, um, the security and the access controls around the, the ecosystems uh, that, that you have. Um, so his question is, how, how are you building security, um, cyber and internal, into the, the information flows, um, controlling who can see what, um, what are there and, and what they're allowed to do with it? All, all the information... Because we've created an ecosystem where, it is, where data is consumed live, we're using an application programming interface, APIs. So mm-hmm. there's no, no rocket science or secret source in what we've done. The, but in using APIs, we can put permissioning systems and we, can, and we can log all the transactions that go across them. So we've got transparency on who and we've got controls on who can access information. Having an API framework means that we're seeing far less copying of data and therefore Mm. have greater control over what it's being used for. The colliery is, or the sort of the the juxtaposition to that problem is that you want people to be using data. So you've got this sort of trust and verify approach so we can see all the transactions of people consuming data via the APIs. But we're trying to be as open as possible within the boundaries of what is permissible within the ecosystem. So not all information is available um, within Woodside, but we're trying to make as much as possible so that people can solve business pr- um, problems using, using data and information. And <clears throat> this comes back to the, the more we use data as an asset, the more value we get from the activity of creating it and the more sort of better treated and well curated that data will become just because people are using it, people respect it, people treat it as something that they're deriving value from. And I'm impressed with the, with the scale um, of, of your, your ecosystem and, and what you've built, the, the speed at which the information flows that the algorithms are are being retrained and and, and computing um it's it's fantastic thank you for that thank you um i'll just say it is a work in progress we're not finished um i would hazard a guess i'd say it's never complete because this 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 world changes so quickly um and that and that's another thing we want to be able to update uh ecosystem to the latest and best um, technology without disrupting. In fact, our consumers don't even know that we're making changes. That's the ideal. It's not that we don't want them to be aware, but they don't need to um, to to be aware that we are we're changing something because 
as far as I'm concerned, they just they just want the information available. So we're we're trying to get that ecosystem where changes can happen in the background, and we've got these layers of separation within our ecosystem so that people can work within their layer, understand that the others other people are responsible for the surrounding layers, but they don't really have to get too involved in the detail. And that allows us to keep keep up to date with current technology, which is changing very fast. That is powerful. Extremely powerful to have a modular ecosystem there. That's great. A work in progress. No, that's excellent, man. Um, there's a question from Max about the the impacts, uh, the people impacts of, of uh, AI projects. Uh, he's if there's been any redundancies related to any of the AI projects, as in like, did, did uh, has an AI made people redundant? If so, what has happened to them? And Conrad made a comment that um, maybe this this uh, could even include cost savings in terms of you know having less machines broken down or anything like that that may that may drive um, any um, requirements for less people. Um, so no, the answer is no. We haven't made anyone redundant based on a, on an AI project. Um, I think what we have done is we've automated the boring stuff as much as possible. Now, there's still a long way to go in that space. Mm. Um, people are our value, most valuable asset. And I think I made the point earlier that we don't involve, we don't regard AI as an alternative to people. It's an augment. We, we very much view it as augmentation of people. Yeah. So the answer is no. There have been no job losses due to the creation of AI tools. What, sorry, what was the second question? So then it was around um, if any of the improvements that, that you've that you've made that are, for example, um, on machines requiring less maintenance, whether that's had a, an impact on, on, on people. So again, no, the answer is it hasn't had an, an impact on people. Um, what it has done is made us a little bit more efficient um, and improved our, our bottom line that way. Um, nice. it, and in doing so, we're heading down the we're heading down a path of doing the right of improving our ability to do the right maintenance at the right time, um, and making sure that the we're using an informed reason to do the activities that we're doing. At this stage, the I think the ebbs and flows of the uh, energy industry. I think uh, during the last year, the, the oil price dropped. Those type of macro levers um, tend to drive the behaviour around um, maintenance and sort of the way the industry works far more than sort of the slow evolution, the continuous evolution that every business goes through in this industry around improving how they do their business. Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good one. Um, from question from, from Ryan around team structures. Um, so he says, what team structure do you recommend for projects? Do you consider having a product, a project manager and a product manager slash owner as, as essentials for data science projects? For data science projects and a data project, if we can sort of tie yeah. them all together, yeah. I think you have to have the business involved and you have to have someone who's tying, the, tying all the loose threads together. Um, so I think a PO and a PM 
in a, in a generally a good addition to any project. Mm. A caveat that with the, the point that not all data projects are big projects. So having that level of resourcing on a project can be a little bit sort of over the top and, to, and financially burdensome. So I guess where I would sort of end up answering this question is you've got to choose the team that's appropriate for the size of the project. Additionally, it has to be culturally aligned to the way a certain industry or a certain company works. Every company is culturally different and has a different way of executing work. So I know even within the sort of the city I work in and the sort of heavy industries that we have surrounding us, every company has a different culture. Um, how they execute work is very much dependent on the culture of the company that they work that they're working within. And so those that the team makeup to deliver a project needs to be sensitive to how that business operates. However, I think if you're not answering a business problem, you're not going to you're not going to have a successful project, and that involve that to in my world is involves having the business sit there with you to describe what good looks like, and having someone who's willing to sort of holistically look at how execution is going is also very important because you because it's not just a data project; it's a data science elements, it's got consumption elements, it's got visualization potentially. How does it all come together? And very rarely do you have all of that capability wrapped in a single individual. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, really good. We have a question from Conrad around the data, the challenges in data ingestions into into uh, the ecosystems. Um, so he his question is: How important was this? Uh, in, was the data ingestion how important was it in the overall ecosystem um and and yeah how big of a, of a challenge was it i hate to quote the big the, some of these big expensive consultants but uh, i read a very interesting article by mckinsey who said that five percent of any company's operating expenditure was spent accessing data mm. um so to me that was a just a huge opportunity when you look at, so Woodside is a reasonably large company, um, but you look at some of the big companies, particularly some of the financial and retail institutions and the amount of information they're trying to get at, um, that number must be a big number. I also felt it when I was working in the sort of data science and we had business intelligence sort of working with us and the the amount of effort that you spent accessing that information and then going back in to get a different but similar set of information from the same system, you're like, oh, there's got to be a better way. So that's when we started doing this. If we're going into a system, we're going to go get all of it and create pipelines and that type of stuff. Again, a work in progress. Um, we need to be able to get access to this information. The other thing is those source systems are there for a reason. They perform, they perform a valuable workflow within the organisation and they're also the best way to make sure the data is um, created consistently and with high quality. So there's a very interesting dynamic there. Um, but building those pipelines is and building them well is a very, very important activity. I get that. When we were, before we 
sort of um, started this podcast, you and I caught up and we talked about a, an interesting problem where your data pipelines and your data ecosystem are an investment in infrastructure. And you're sort of entrusting that people are going to use the infrastructure. And I think it's like building a road. You build, if you're building a road, you, you're hoping that the road, the destination the road ends up at is somewhere where people want to go. And so you're building these, you're building these pipelines based on the fact that you're, you're trusting that people want to get at this information and it's a valuable asset, the business. I think I stretched that sort of analogy in my head a little bit when I said the POC is like sort of creating a walking track where you go from this, where you started to where you want to be and you follow a sort of little goat track and then as people, more and more people walk on it, it gets more and more formed and eventually becomes a superhighway if, if, it's, if it's valuable to lots of people. That's, that's great analogy is done man i love it that is awesome um i'm going to close the the poll now so we can go through the answers we had about 80 percent of people answer the the poll and i'm keen to get your thoughts so question which question one was are your data and machine learning environments all together or are they separate um 56 of people said that they have them as separate uh, 44% or said all together. Uh, any any thoughts from your side on that one? Um, I guess I've got a bias to separate because that's mm. what we've built. Um, it does make integration within the data science system very easy if they're together. Um, but I think, and if you're, I've seen, I've seen plenty of very powerful data science teams work that way. Mm. Um, I guess the challenge to them is then deployment. So once once you get uh, an answer, if you're just running sort of studies and POCs, it probably works very well. Um, now, I shouldn't talk ill because we have of that type of ecosystem because we don't run one like that. But we do find our separation very powerful because not all data consumers are data scientists, mm. um, nor are they intending to use data science tools. They just want information or automation purposes or visualization purposes or application purposes. So, um, so we're trying to service all those, all of those customers with our ecosystem. Good. It's really good. Um, the, the next two questions, uh, got the same answer, which is, which is interesting. So question two was what's the most challenging part of data science projects and question three was where do you spend most of your time? Um, and both got over 50% of people voting for data preparation. Um, and then, yeah, it looks like the next highest one for spending your time was on data exploration and on um, the challenging part. The second largest one was for putting things into production. Really interesting. Um, any, any thoughts from your side? I can't disagree with that. It is spot on what we saw. Um, and the problems that we, I think, the problems that we recognised and tackled head on early on in the piece, and I think we're, we're well down a journey to sort of having those problems not solved but minimised for our part of the business. Um, consuming, industrialising the ingestion patterns and, um, and the data acquisition 
has been a, a bonus for the business um, and we're seeing more investment in that area. Um, and then getting to the point where we have a deployment framework that works most of the time, is suitable for most of the data science projects. There, will, there is, as with everything, there are step outs and different outcomes, but most of the time we can get a data science algorithm out pretty quickly. And that leads to the scale of the number of models that we run on a, uh, on a consistent basis because the framework's very easy. So, yes, they're very challenging, I think. And everyone likes the sort of the sort of creation of insight and value that the data scientists do, but there's sort of heavy lifting at both ends that need to be resolved. So how do you, how do you make the fun stuff the fun stuff and the boring stuff automated? Right, yeah. And, and I would have um, expected a lot more time on, on user adoption um, and and for more people seeing that as a as a challenge, um, at least at least from from my experience. Um, one of the observations, I think, oh, this is a Lachlan observation, um, and probably not a Woodside observation, if I can make that distinction. The various different types of industries have different adoption problems. If I look at my iPhone, everyone talks, looks, and it's just here next to me. That's why I looked away. Everyone looks to, the, to that as an example of digitization um, and what the digital future may look like. I looked at some of the applications on there and the amount of time I actually spent looking at them. Um, and I don't know, pick, pick one, pick a famous one, I don't know, Google Maps. Mm. I might look at it for 10 minutes a week. I wouldn't. I wouldn't live without it. But it's 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 not an ecosystem I'm immersed in constantly. But adoption's good, and its scale is by volume. And I imagine they've invested a lot of money in it. Now, if my company had invested a similar amount of money in it in an application like that, but was only getting me looking at it for a couple of minutes a week, I, I think they'd be disappointed. So there's a different scale of how adoption happens within different industries and in with different ecosystems and different work environments. Mm. And it's a challenge. One of the challenges we sort of took on was trying to use the ex deploy into existing tools so that we didn't have to have an application adoption problem as well. Yeah. But the sort of corporate ecosystem where you're sitting in tools for long periods of time is not the sort of consumer experience of applications. It's I guess an observation Lachlan makes. Yeah, man, that is that is uh, very true and very very important. And yeah, I know that at least in, in my case, we we track the usage of the data that we create and the the insights, the dashboards, the models, um, and how yeah how frequent uh, they're being used by how many people. And we definitely expect our work to be used more than ten minutes a, a week. Um, so that's a really you'd good, like really so. good point. You'd like to think it was the critical business solution that you'd solved. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the um, the last question in the poll was around a citizen data science framework. Um, and the majority of people, 88% uh, of people say that their organization does not have one. 12% said that they do have one. Um, what was uh, What is your, your perspective on this? Um, look, with Perth's a very isolated city and we don't have the 
luxury of riches in the sort of data science ecosystem to to solve every problem for the business. Mm. So uh, our tactic is to enable our business to solve some of these problems themselves. Um, I think the experience of data science is that you get a lot of low-level, low-complexity requests that can be quite comfortably solved by a numerically literate individual given a right tool set and tools. But yes, we are enabling citizen data science as much as possible. And in fact, our data ecosystem for the longest time has been called the citizen data science ecosystem to enable that sort of thought process and concept of consuming data, being able to build your own insights off it. The, and you're starting to see tools that are um, coming to the market and coming to the ecosystem that allow that to happen. I think the first round of tools were very confronting. Um, in terms of the, the average user, but now some of the more modern tools, um, Microsoft Suite, some of the stuff coming out of other, other um, vendors is, is starting to enable that to happen. I, th I, I look at the, the big data concept, if you call it that, um, and it was very much the power uh, sort of visualisation of information was the original sort of concept of it. And then when the, the mathematicians got hold of it and you're sort of moving into more and more complex maths from simply visualising data to the next step around using, applying algorithms and mathematics to large data sets. For the longest time, that's had a barrier to it around code, code literacy. Um, now that code literacy barrier is coming down, but I still think it still exists um, and will continue to exist in the more complex realms where sort of coding and um, is required to get in, get big data into complex mathematics. Um, if you look at some of the physics tools that I talked about earlier, they don't actually require a lot of in input. So, they can do very complex mathematics, but they don't require big data. So this ecosystem of big data and big complex mathematics is the world of data science, and it still has a barrier around coding, which is slowly getting solved. Yeah, definitely improving improving over time. Um, I know that we we are out of time. I see um, I see some people have. Um, a few people have dropped off, uh, which is understandable. So we will um, leave it there. But Lachlan, the, um, the amount of comments and the amount of questions that you're getting, um, this is an area of huge interest to, to the audience. And, and they were very, very excited to hear from you. Um, comment, comment from Conrad there. Enjoyed it. Great success. Um, yeah, Lachlan, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your, your journey, your perspectives, uh, the amazing work that you guys have done. It's been uh, fantastic to get an insight into into the the great work um, that that is going on uh, in in Perth. So thank you, thank you so much for this. Look, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's a story we're still still creating, so uh, maybe I can, we'll have more stories to tell in the future. But I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That'll be great. Definitely keen. Definitely keen for for a part two. Uh, people are saying yes. Thank you. Great. Great to hear. Um, Great for the share. People say thank you. Uh, Heather says thank you. Very informative. So, mate, thank you so much. 
Um, thank you to our sponsors for allowing us to create this content. So Yellowfin, Databricks, Ambiata, Talent Insights, definitely a big, big shout outs to them. And also shout outs to uh, people that were particularly active in the chat and with their good questions. Um, so today we had uh, Conrad, Natasha, uh, Helena, Kirsten, Stuart, Sarah, Anshu, Anna, Antoine, Ryan, Tim, Max. Um, thank you so much for your participation. And uh, yeah, very keen to continue to have the, the chat and the Q&A as, as active as, as it was in this session. Thank you so much, everyone. For the people have, that have registered for the series, uh, you will be getting the recording by email um, and come back next week for uh, episode 13 of Advancing AI series. Thank you so much, everyone. See you then. Lachlan, that was amazing. Thanks again, mate. Thank you have, a, yeah. have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Bye. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.